Show. As always, I'm your host, JC Calavita, aka Hot Spice. This week, I'm going to highlight a few controversial plays and discuss the thing that has haunted Jacob DeGrom his entire career. Today, we also have an interview with Ben Landis. He's a freshman catcher for the Ithaca Bombers of the Eastern College Athletic Conference in Ithaca, New York. He's going to give us an idea of what it's like to be behind the plate and have the entire game in front of you. And to end the show, this player finally caught lightning in a bottle on what could have been his last chance in the Major League's four player of the week. All right, so I'm going to talk first about these controversial plays. Now, both plays were crucial in the game's outcome. So the Alec Bohm play sounded like this. Didi pops that one into the opposite field. Ozuna's got it. Bohm's going to try it. Here he comes, and he's safe at the plate. Wow. So basically, Didi Gregorius was up with a runner on third with one out in a tie game. He hits a little fly ball to short left field. And I'm watching this game, and I'm thinking, there's no way Dusty Wathen sends Alec Bohm on this play. It's too shallow. And I forgot that Marcelo Zuno, the left fielder at the time, he's a former gold glover, but his arm has deteriorated through injuries, and he's not the same defender he once was. So Wathen sends it. Wathen sends Bohm, and he gets called safe. There's all these stories about how Alec Bohm didn't touch the plate, and there was a replay, and, you know, there wasn't enough evidence to overturn it. And I, I don't know why there was so much backlash to this. Now, there was no clear evidence that Bohm touched the plate, but there was no evidence that he didn't touch the plate either. I've been asked about this a lot as a Phillies fan, and speaking objectively, of course, I'm not going to be like, yeah, Bohm was safe. Obviously, he was safe because that's not true. There's no clear evidence that he touched the plate. There's no clear evidence that he didn't touch the plate. I'm going to equate this to the NFL, as I've explained to my friends a couple of times. In the NFL, the call on the field is the most important thing. Unless there's clear evidence, you're going to go with what the referee, or in this case, the umpire, you know, what his ruling was. In the NFL, in most cases, replay is used to see if a ball was a catch or not. So if a play is a catch, you got to look for the two feet down. And if there's grass in between the foot and the sideline to see if the guy was in bounds. And in this particular instance, you couldn't really, there was no angle that the replay showed where there was indisputable evidence. There was no, you couldn't see dirt in between Bohm's foot and the plate, but you also couldn't see that Bohm clearly touched the plate. And again, the umpire called him safe. So that was, that was going to be the call. And no one should be mad at that. It should be like the production crew's fault because there was no camera that showed the plate from the correct angle. And props to Dusty Wathman for knowing the situation, knowing the arm you have in left field, and knowing the speed you have in Alec Bohm, and that won the Phillies the game. I don't really like how the announcers reacted to the Braves fans' reactions at Truist Park. After the umpires conferred with the replay they call, and called them safe, fans began th- throwing stuff onto the field. And they did that against the Cardinals in the wild card game a few years back. And ESPN Sunday Night Baseball play-by-play broadcaster Matt Baskersian, who's in my podcast intro, has the audacity to say the Phillies could feel right at home in this environment 
when they're throwing bottles onto the field? Why would you take a jab at the Phillies fans when the Braves fans are the ones who are literally throwing stuff on the field? Like, I had a lot of respect for Matt Vasgersian, and that was kind of uncalled for. And plus, it's the Eagles fans who do the stuff. Like, Eagles fans, probably one of the most passionate fan bases in sports. Like, they're ruthless to the opposing team. But they've never really – I mean, as far as I've watched, they've never really thrown anything on the field. After this, you saw so much backlash, like, on Twitter. Even Mike Trout tweeted. He said that it was awful. But you just – I don't know why they did this because there was no indisputable evidence. Like, yeah, I mean, in my opinion, he was probably out. But, again, there was no evidence. You have to go with the judgment call. And replay was inconclusive. There was nothing the umpires could have done. And honestly, the home plate umpire was right on top of the plate, so maybe he saw him touch the plate. Like, maybe we can take into account that the umpire was actually good at his job for once. All right, moving on to Michael Conforto. Last Thursday, the Mets played a home opener versus the Marlins. The game was tied 2-2 two to two in the bottom of the ninth. Conforto's up with the bases loaded. All right? This is what happens. One, two coming. And the slider in there. Strike three. Hit him. Conforto's hit him. The pitch. It hit him. Goes through the strike zone. It hit Conforto. He made no effort to get out of the way. It was a strike. But he didn't move. And Don Mattingly is going to come out and argue the call with the home plate umpire, Ron Culpa. Conforto was hit by the pitch. And you know what? It was a strike. It was clearly a strike. It hit him in the elbow pad, but the strike zone tracker thing showed it that it was a strike. It was in the top right corner, or it was in the inside corner of the zone, and it should have been strike three. Game should have been sent to extras. And honestly, this play should have been focused on so much more than the bone play was. I saw so many more tweets and social media posts and articles about the bone play than Conforto where Conforto literally broke the unwritten rules of baseball, where he leaned into the pitch, and the umpire should have known better. That is the point where we need replay. You could, that's an unreviewable play where it should be. You should be able to review if a player gets hit by a pitch or not, or if it's in the strike zone or not. That was a terrible call by the umpire. That was awful. Clearly, a strike zone was a terrible way to win the game. And Ron Darlin, the Mets color commentator, a former all-star and a World Series champion, he even talked about it. Like, listen to what he said about the play. The ball hit him, and it was going to be a strike. You're trying to get it right. They don't get it right. So why even have replay? It's just awful. It's just a terrible way to win a game, and it's not what you want to see, especially when you're trying to grow the game of baseball, when you have guys leaning into pitches who aren't trying to hit the ball. They're trying to get on base. I mean, I understand you're trying to win the game for your team, but you got to – Swing the bat, man. It was a strike in the upside in the top half of the zone. Swing the bat, get a hit, make your team win the real way. Not a BS way, getting hit by a pitch in the strike zone. Now it's time to welcome our guest to the show. He's a freshman catcher for the Ithaca College Bombers baseball team of the Eastern College Athletic Conference in Ithaca, New York. He was a three-year starter for the Oratory Prep Rams in Summit, New Jersey, as a junior, he was named to the All-Union County Conference second team. Ben Landis, welcome to the Hot Spice Show. How are you, Ben? I'm good. Thank you for having me. All right, man. So I start off every interview about the same. I ask players to give me a scouting report on themselves. 
Uh, I'd say I'm a pretty solid defensive catcher, a little undersized, uh, contact hitter, uh, not much power, uh, pretty good speed for a catcher. What do you think sets you apart from other catchers? Uh, I'd say probably my feel for the game and my arm. So what's it, how hard is it to make that throw to second base on your knees? Have you done anything like that in a game? Yeah. Um, honestly, a lot of the time when you're doing it in game, you kind of black out for a second and you just let uh, muscle memory take over. But when you're really trying and thinking about it in practice, it gets pretty tedious because some coaches are telling you to aim for the pitcher's head. Some of you telling to trust your arm, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, yeah, with, with enough practice, it gets to be uh, just muscle memory. What's your mindset when you call a game? Uh, my mindset is I've always had the belief where uh, the worst pitch to throw in baseball is a pitch that the pitcher doesn't want to throw. Um, so I, I kind of like to bounce off the pitcher and get able to feel what he's feeling before the game uh, and then build off of that during the game and uh, just see what works. Because sometimes in the bullpen before the game, his, his number one pitch could be the curveball, but then when you get on the actual mound, he could be feeling his change up more. So you kind of let him steer the way, but uh, at the end of the day, you're in control. How did you learn that? How did you learn how to call a game? Like, did you learn it in Little League or just in high school? Because – I've always thought it was so interesting how catchers just know what pitch to come to throw next. Uh, honestly, it started with uh, a coach that I'm sure, you know, Ed Marshall, um, back in little league. I, I mean, I started catching probably when I was nine or 10 and even at that age playing a uh, rec or in-house, he, uh, he let me call games and he would give me pointers. Obviously a lot of the time it was just fastballs and stuff, but yeah, he gave me some pretty good pointers. How do you adjust to different pitchers? Um, basically, it's just repetition by catching them and paying attention. If you just sit there and you're a pitch back, then uh, you're going to struggle a lot. But by just reading how their body language is and how they throw in bullpens and games, you can pretty easily like pick up a pitcher's tendencies and how they like to throw a baseball game. How do you like to prepare for a game? Um. I like to be pretty casual. Um, obviously, you have to eat and hydrate before, and then a big stretch. Uh, I'm never really nervous before games, and uh, most of that has to do with my teammates. I've always been around teammates that have a pretty loose attitude, uh, so I like to keep it loose, nice stretch, nice warm-up, just being mentally and physically prepared. How will you describe the difference between high school and college pitchers? Um, I'd say – College pitchers can put the ball wherever they want it and whenever they want it. In high school, if you needed a strike, you throw a fastball. In college, if you needed a strike, you throw whatever the pitcher wants to throw. Like the the three one change up, three zero change up. They're they're using uh, pitches that they would in a would use ahead of the count, uh, behind of the count in college. What's the biggest piece of advice you've received from an upperclassman catcher this year? Um, just continue to work hard and listen to uh, coach's advice. Uh, we have a catching coach here who was actually an Ithaca College grad. And uh, so he's been through the ropes here. And he's actually kind of the same kind of player build as I am. 
a little undersized catcher. So I've been listening to him as much as I can. And really when I'm not playing, just watching the other catchers and see how they do and uh, kind of bounce ideas off of them. What would you say is the most important skill to have as a catcher? Uh, the ability to, uh, to control the game. Uh, if you're just sitting there and you're catching the ball, obviously there's important aspects like receiving and blocking and such. But if, if you're just sitting there and throwing the ball back to the pitcher and not keeping the energy up and feeding off of him and getting the players involved and everything, then uh, the game's going to be flat and it's kind of just going to go by in an instant. What do you do to calm down a pitcher? Um, when I – if he's just missing location, I'll just put my hands up and tell him to slow down a little bit. If he's walking people on four pitches and such, I'll go out there and I'll probably lead off with a joke and uh, try to get him to smile, relax a little bit and let him know it's just me and him out there and he's got nothing else to uh, think about. What's the number one thing that you want to improve on for your sophomore year? Um, it's actually not really uh, anything to do with the game. It's just, size i want to put on a good amount of healthy weight uh while still maintaining uh, speed and agility behind the dish how do you plan to do that oh uh, they've uh, instilled a pretty good workout program here and uh, i'll probably try to follow the best of uh, my ability i'll probably to lift it and then uh implement some running as well just to keep that uh good physique so take me to your through your recruiting process like how did you find Ithaca and like what other schools were interested in you? Um, so basically I had probably offers and interest from three or four other schools. Uh, like Ur Ursinus was a big one. Uh, I was talking to Dickinson a little bit, but uh, with Ithaca, I actually reached out here first. I was looking for uh, a school with a good sport management program, which is my major and Ithaca popped up in probably top three or top four and I took a look at the website and I saw their canvas and how beautiful it was and everything so then I reached out to coach and uh, he came and he saw me play and then he asked if I wanted to come on a visit did that and then uh, eventually I decided to commit. So how did Ithaca handle an offseason with these COVID-19 restrictions? Um, baseball wise we did a lot of uh, team meetings once or twice a week um, as well as keeping up with a, a weight and a throwing program. And uh, in the team meetings, I don't know if you know, uh, Tim LaCastro, he's an Ithaca College grad. So we had him on one of them just to bring us through what his time here at Ithaca was like and a lot of other grads too. So it kind of kept us wired into baseball and it didn't make it seem so far away. Is Tim LaCastro like really involved in the Ithaca College program, like being a major league player? Yeah, he's a... Uh, He's actually one of uh, our uh, assistant coach's uh, best friends. So he, he's always uh, reposting and he's still got Ithaca College Bombers in his Instagram bio. And like I said, he's coming to Zoom meetings and yeah, he's a really personable guy. Have you personally met him or not? Not quite yet. Not one-on-one, -on -one, but just uh, in the meeting, it was just uh, him and then the baseball program. So Ithaca, New York, or Ithaca being in upstate New York, it's such, it's so cold. What's it like being in an area that's so cold during your season? Uh, it, it's a battle. I mean, some days we have a fantastic indoor facility. So when it's snowing, it's, it's pretty much just, if you can make the walk, you can do it. 
Uh, and some days you got to really battle uh, the wind, but then you got to realize that it's a blessing to be able to play baseball in college. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. So those 32 degree days with wind making it feel like 20 is all worth it at the end. You think you guys have an advantage during those freezing cold home games? Um, yeah, I mean, especially a lot of the schools we play are around the same area, so they get the cold, but we're uh, pretty elevated and right by uh, Lake Cayuga, so there's a lot of wind. So I think knowing the wind and being prepared for the wind is a much more advantage uh, than uh, just the cold alone. So talk to me about your coach. Like, what's his style like? Um, he played uh, professional baseball as well as his father. His father coached here for, I think, uh, close to four decades. So he kind of instilled the, uh, the culture of the program. And then he retired. This would be my coach's second year, but after last year, this is kind of his first. So he kind of had a uh, winning mentality. And so he kind of he keeps that. He plays and coaches with a lot of pride. Uh, knowing that his dad made the program. So he's, he's pretty, uh, pretty intense guy. He's not like words or anything. He just expects us to be a uh, pretty good most of the time. So it's good. So I know some people have been known to sort of belittle D3 sports. What would you say to that? Um, I'd say, I, I, I don't know why there would be a reason everyone's, playing college baseball d1 d3 for the same reason just because they love the sport um and from what i've seen i I let some of the rumors get to my head too like d3 baseball is just slightly better than high school and the jump from high school to uh, college was insane a lot of the time it's just some of these players could be d1 they just don't have the size but they have the skill or they have the skill and size they just didn't have the exposure so i'd say it's D3 baseball is closer to D1 baseball than high school is to D3. So you talked about exposure. Who did you, did you play on a club team that really helped you get noticed? Oh yeah, for sure. I played on uh, the rising rebels. Um, it was out of uh, Del Barton high school and my uh, head coach, Tony Negrin, he's an assistant coach at Del Barton. He, uh, he helped me through every part of the recruiting aspect. This is kind of a different question, but like, what's, what's the coolest place you've ever, you've ever played at? Uh, Cooperstown as a kid, just because I was a kid was pretty insane. Um, But probably my junior year of high school, we played at uh, Somerset Patriots stadium. And that was kind of a surreal moment of, it was just at the time. Now it's uh, a double A affiliate. It was just a uh, indie league. So we, we still like knew that wasn't like a professional baseball uh, league, but it, it, it was, uh, it felt like that. It was awesome. What trait do you think a college baseball player needs to, in order to succeed? Um, just, just a tough mindset. I mean, everyone goes to those days when you're waking up at five in the morning to go lift and then have a practice after it. They're just the little roadblocks that you need to get through and remember why you're here and that you love the game and you love that. Like you have to fall in love with the being uncomfortable at five in the morning. What's been the most difficult part for you as a baseball player? Like, is it, is it balancing your schoolwork? Is it, is it just learning a new team? 
Yeah, uh, the team was definitely pretty open. I'd say the most difficult part, and I'm sure everyone's known it going in, is everyone who plays college baseball was if one of, if not like the better players on their team in high school. So from going from that to just another freshman, that's that's pretty tough. But the, being how open the team was, I got over that probably within the first month. What would you say is the coolest thing that you've ever done on a baseball field? Um, it's probably my favorite memory is uh, sophomore year. We were in uh, it was the second round of states, and uh, we were down uh, was it six two or seven three going into the last inning. And uh, we walked bases loaded and got some runs in. Then we were down by one with uh, second and third and two outs. And I was a, a little sophomore and I had a uh, walk off two run single to advance in states. So that was probably my favorite baseball memory. Who, who really influenced you in the baseball player that you ultimately became? Uh, I'd say my mom, my dad, my grandfather, um, my mom is the one who actually introduced me to baseball. Then uh, my dad, of course, being dad, he kept me working hard. And then uh, my grandfather, who played baseball his entire life, uh, tried to keep me kind of old-fashioned, humble as a player. And, uh, yeah. All right, last question here, Ben. What do you love most about baseball? Uh, I love that you never know what's going to happen. Uh, and uh, – I mean, every day you go out and, of course, there are going to be nine innings played, but anything can happen. Uh, like, what was it? This weekend we were playing a uh, weekend series against Vassar, and we were getting two hit until the uh, last inning, and then we put up 11 runs to win. So we, we were feeling flat all day, and then out of nowhere it happened. Just like unlike basketball or football, you can't run out of the clock. We had to get all 27 outs, and uh, we used them to the best of our ability there. <laughs> Well, thank you, Ben. I really appreciate you coming out here and joining me on the show today. And I hope you, I wish you best of luck for the rest of the year. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for the player of the week. This week, I'm going to talk about Carlos Rodon, a right-handed pitcher for the Chicago White Sox. He was selected in the 16th round of the 2011 draft out of Holly Springs High School in North Carolina by the Milwaukee Brewers. Instead of signing with the Brew Crew, Rodon elected to attend NC State. As a first-year member of the Wolfpack, Rodon had a memorable freshman season. He went 9-0 with a 1.57 ERA. He set the NC State freshman record for strikeouts in a season and was a finalist for the Golden Spikes Award, which, for those of you that don't know, is the Heisman Trophy of college baseball. USA's collegiate national team reached out to Rodon after his freshman year, and originally his college coach wanted him to be shut down for that summer. But Rodon got the chance to play in Cuba, which is where his family is from, and he felt it was an opportunity that he couldn't pass up. Carlos Rodon continued to be one of, if not the most talented pitchers in college baseball as his career progressed. His sophomore and junior seasons for NC State were superb. He was a highly touted prospect and decided to forego his senior season to enter the MLB draft in 2014. He was selected third overall by the Chicago White Sox. He rose through the minor league ranks quickly and found himself in the show a little less than a year after being drafted. The Sox original plan for Rodon was to start him off in the bullpen, the same way they eased Chris Sale into the majors. And you can't really argue with the result that strategy produced. Through his age 32 season, Sale has been selected for seven all-star teams and has twice led the league in strikeouts and has a World Series ring. In his rookie season, Rodon went 9-6 with a 3.75 ERA. 
didn't exactly light the world on fire, but that's a respectable stat line for someone's first year in the bigs. His next few seasons were filled with injuries. He dealt with a wrist issue in 2016. He was only able to start 12 games in 2017. And in 2018, he was on the 60-day DL to begin the season with shoulder problems. He was never able to reach the level of effectiveness he had in his rookie season. But the 2019 campaign did pose a lot of optimism for Rodon as he was named the opening day starter for the Pelhos. However, it was announced that he would undergo Tommy John surgery in May of that year. In 2020, he was able to come back but only appeared in four games. So during the offseason, teams must offer players with less than six years of service time a contract in order for them to stay on their 40-man roster. The Sox did not offer Rodon a contract, and he became a free agent. Surprisingly, less than two months after not receiving a contract from the White Sox, they re-signed him on a one-year deal worth $3 million. So far, it appears to be a smart move on the Chicago's part because in his second start of the season against the Indians, he did this. Focusing, three and two, Rodon. To third, Moncada. Carlos Rodon has thrown a no-hitter after everything he's been through. The elbow and the shoulder were supreme on April 14th, 2021. In fact, he was two outs away from a perfect game. He hit catcher Roberto Perez with one out in the ninth inning and was so close to that perfect game. But this is an awesome story about a player who at one point in time was looked at as a potential face of a franchise. And now he just wants to establish himself as a member of the White Sox rotation. And right now he's on his way to doing that. All right, everyone, that'll just about do it for this edition of the Hot Spice Show. Thank you so much for listening. I release new episodes every Thursday. I love doing this and I hope you all continue to listening so I can keep doing it. Make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter at jc underscore colavita12. That's j underscore c-o-l-a-v-i-t-a 12. I'd like to thank Ben Landis for taking the time to join me this week, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I look forward to you joining me on next week's episode. One more time, I'm JC Calavita, a.k.a. Hot Spice, and this has been The Hot Spice Show. Peace, bros.